Welcome to the second location. I'm Holly, and I'm continuing on with our never-ending discussion of the Tommy Ziegler case. Never-ending for us, and also for Tommy, because he is still on death row in Florida four decades after he was found guilty of four murders that I personally don't think he committed. In this episode, we are going to talk about the jury deliberations, evidence that came to light after the trial had concluded, the possibility that evidence was planted, and Tommy's appeals. First, we're going to go over jury deliberations. And honestly, it's going to be wacky, but it gets wackier even after the trial is over and the jury has rendered its verdict because years later, the defense really finds out what was going on in that deliberations room. And it's insane and it's intense. So the trial has concluded and the case is turned over to the jury. Now, the jury doesn't reach a decision that first day and they retired for the evening after six. But before deliberations could continue the next morning, one juror, her name's Irma Brickle, had fallen ill. And this could have meant a mistrial. Brickle's doctor was called to assist her, and Brickle was able to return to jury deliberations by late morning. But the jury couldn't come to a verdict, and their jury retired that night at 7. Now, at this point, there is evidence of discord in the jury room. Because the next morning, before deliberations started for the third day, a bailiff let the judge know that juror Irma Brickle had requested a private audience with the judge. I want you to know that this is pretty much unheard of. And the judge tried to ascertain the nature of the problem by sending a note to the juror asking her to advise in writing the nature of the subject matter you wish to discuss. And I'm going to agree with the judge here. I think this was the proper way to handle the issue at this point. But every decision the judge made after this note was sent was, in my opinion, highly improper and should have been reversible error. Irma's written response was, quote, request concerns other jurors and decisions made before they permitted to make them. Okay, it is fairly obvious that Irma is trying to say that there are jurors who had decided their verdict before the case was submitted to them. But that's not how the prosecution and the judge interpret this note. They interpret the note as a juror was announcing a decision. And the defense argues that it seems like jurors had made up their minds before all the evidence was in. But the prosecutor says, if that was the case, why didn't the juror tell us sooner? It's important to remember, well, you know, she did require medical intervention the day before. And it's only been a day and a half of deliberations. There was the half day after closing arguments. Then there was the next day where Irma became ill. And that was a truncated day of deliberations. And this would be the third day of deliberations, but it hasn't started yet. So it's only a day and a half into deliberations. So them saying she didn't tell us sooner. Maybe she didn't realize that immediately, but she, it's not far into deliberations a day and a half either. So I think it's a moot point. And I think the fact that with the medical intervention needed the day before, I think Irma's clearly trying to say that she is in distress. The judge sends another note to Irma trying to pin down her time frame. I get the feeling Irma's having a hard time expressing herself because of the situation she finds herself in. Irma was holding out and sticking with her not guilty vote. Now, no one knows that at the time. We know that later. But she was, she was a juror that was not willing to convict Tommy. The judge sends another note to Irma trying to pin down her time frame. I get the feeling Irma's having a hard time expressing herself because of the situation she finds herself in. She was holding out and sticking with her not guilty vote. There's other drawers that this isn't sitting well with them. Let's just say it this way. Irma was not popular on that jury. Irma wrote back to this second note from the judge, statement made immediately after Foreman was elected and numerous other things. This is just the main item. So she's saying it was immediately after the, the Foreman was elected. So that's the beginning of deliberations. And underneath that, Irma had written, made before Wednesday afternoon. 
the judge basically ignored the whole made before Wednesday afternoon notation, dismissing it because she was, quote, a nervous lady. Before Wednesday afternoon would be before the case had been turned over for the jury for deliberations. That's why that's important. So if someone had made a decision before the case was handed over for the jury to decide, that is where you have you have to call a mistrial. Jurors are supposed to be keeping an open mind until they go into that room and they analyze the evidence and go over everything together. And if people had already made up their minds during some point during the trial, you can't be on the jury. And I think she's doing her best to say that. And you know, just dismissing Irma Brickle as a quote, nervous lady when you find out later what she was going through and what she was standing up against in the jury room it's just so dismissive and it, it says so much about people's opinion of women at that time that this lady would just be just a nervous lady when really she had more courage than anybody else on that jury including the men but they pushed her around in ways we'll talk about it later but to me i mean she regrets her ultimate decision and i feel bad for her because she stood up for as long as she could and You'll see eventually what wears her down, but it will be years before the defense would learn what Irma was trying to bring to the judge's attention. And years before the defense would learn just how a remedy was found to alleviate Irma's stress. A note was sent to Irma thanking her and telling her that there was no need for a conference after that response that she sent. At 12.15, the jury broke for lunch and Irma collapsed and was unconscious. Irma was taken to an office in the courthouse where she fainted twice. This woman is clearly undergoing an intensely stressful situation and she's asked for help from the judge and she's needed medical intervention before and now she's going unconscious and she's fainting. Irma was asked if she wanted to see a doctor. She replied that she wanted to see the judge. Oh, and it bothers me because here's the thing. It is very uncommon for a judge to ever talk to somebody that's on a sitting jury. I think if he'd done it, it would have been a, an appealable issue. Definitely. Also, I think there's more ways to find out from her without bringing her in exactly what she's trying to say is going on in that jury room because this woman's having medical complications from whatever is happening there. I don't know about Irma's medical history. Maybe she was a big fainter before, but she wasn't fainting during the trial. She wasn't fainting when she saw all these pictures of the bodies. So I'm going to say that she's someone that could endure some level of stress and I don't want to just keep calling her like the judge does a nervous lady because she, she didn't faint during the trial, but something's happening in that jury room that's really shaking this woman up. So when she's asked if she wants to see a doctor, she says no. She wants to see the judge. And the judge refused to see her and returned her to the jury room. The defense thought that Irma was being pressured to change her vote and they moved for a mistrial. The motion, of course, was denied. And that very same evening, the jury returned a verdict. Tommy was found guilty on all four charges. First degree murder for Eunice and Charlie and oddly enough, second degree murder for Virginia and Perry's death. The day that the jury returned its verdict, another decision had been made, but this one by the United States Supreme Court. They ruled that Florida's newly updated death penalty, well, it passed constitutional muster. And when the jury sentenced Tommy to life in prison, the judge overturns the jury's sentence and decided to sentence Tommy to death. Side note, judges can't do that anymore in Florida, but that doesn't help Tommy. Now, we find out later that initially the jury was evenly split. Six for guilty, six for not guilty. But as they debated, the guilty votes increased until on Thursday, Irma was left as the lone not guilty vote. All of the evidence was in the jury room. And when Irma would try to make a point in defense of Tommy, there was another male juror who 
picked up one of the murder weapons, one of the guns, and pointed it at the back of Irma's head and pulled the trigger. This was one of the issues that Irma wanted to talk to the judge about. So she wasn't just a nervous lady. There was serious juror misconduct going on in that deliberations room. And I want you to know, it wasn't just Irma's account that this happened. And it's not just other people that saw it that happened. The man that held the gun to the back of her head, he admits he did that. And no, I get it. The gun wasn't loaded, but I don't think it's proper. And did he check to see if the gun wasn't loaded? I don't know. And I don't trust that it would have been anyway. I mean, honest to gosh, you see how sloppy things can be at times. That man held a gun to the back of that woman's head. I don't care. He was trying to intimidate her. And that's what he did. And she persisted and she stayed strong. I mean, she was having some major medical issues because of this, but she was doing everything she could to stand up for what she believed in. When everybody else was folding, Irma, quote unquote, a nervous lady, she wasn't folding. The other jurors yelled at Irma. And then there's another juror that's come out in more recent years. And is she has changed her opinion of, of her, you know, she voted Tommy guilty, found him guilty. And she's changed her assessment of the case. And she supports completely Irma's story of what happened. But also she says that she was concerned that it could have come to actual violence. And this other juror says it was a very frightening situation for even her to be in. And this is what happened to the people that thought Tommy was innocent. This is how they were treated. Irma just wanted the jurors to take a look at that picture of Charlie May's sweatshirt with the tooth lying on it. Irma thought that tooth was important. And Irma was right. Two teeth were found at the crime scene. Only one person at the crime scene was missing a single tooth. Where the hell did that other tooth come from? That's all Irma wanted an answer for. And for that, another juror put a gun to her head. And when she asked for help, when she asked for assistance, the judge told her no. Most of this information came out when a documentary about the murders and the subsequent trial was in production. And while the documentary was never finished, it included interviews with some jurors, including Irma. And it was just like eye-opening what had happened. After the defense had moved for a mistrial, you know, based on evidence of juror misconduct, and the judge denied that motion. The judge made a phone call that the defense didn't learn about until after the trial. And in this phone call, the judge contacted Irma Brickle's doctor, and the doctor prescribed Irma Velium, which she took. Then she went back to jury deliberation. Irma was not previously on Velium. This was a new prescription that was written for her at the behest of the trial judge. She goes back into the jury room. Jurors noted the difference in her attitude. They said she seemed to float into the room. Anyway, Irma still wants to try to discuss the evidence. And this is when the guy puts the gun to her head because she asks, I don't know, can anybody explain to me how Tommy Ziegler did this? And that's when the guy goes over to the evidence cart, picks up a gun, puts it to the back of her head and said, this is how he did it and pulls the trigger. The jury takes another vote. Irma changes her vote and she votes guilty. And that's how Tommy Ziegler was found guilty. The judge had to have medical intervention to have one of the jurors drugged to get the verdict that he wanted. And it worked. And how, based on this alone, Tommy has not gotten a new trial. I can never understand. But the verdict is in. And Tommy went to Florida's death row, where he is currently the second longest serving death row prisoner in Florida. And there's another man um, has Tommy beat by a few months. Interestingly enough, both men have been recently granted access to advanced DNA testing of the evidence in their cases, which I will circle back to later after I outline Tommy's appeals and the new information that was uncovered after the trial. Because this new advanced DNA testing is Tommy's latest battle and probably his really his only and last chance to prove 
prove his innocence. And Tommy's lawyers have been using all this newly found information in his appeals, but Tommy has never really had any success on the appellate level. He has had his death sentence overturned, and at his resentencing, he was again sentenced to death. At this stage in his appeals, the representative for the state was Jeff Dashen of Casey Anthony fame. I mean, the lawyer lost, perhaps the easiest murder case ever. I mean, this guy lost perhaps the easiest murder case ever. He honestly never thought that Casey and Anthony's lawyers would come up with a defense. He looked utterly unprepared when the Anthony team claimed that little Kaylee's death had been an accident that was covered up. I just don't understand why that caught him off guard. It's honestly the only defense that Casey Anthony had available to her. What the hell else could she argue? I think Jeff Ashton went into that still thinking it was going to be Zanny the Nanny nonsense. Like this guy didn't understand. We're not, you're not going up against Casey Anthony anymore. You're going up against Casey Anthony and an attorney. The attorney's going to put together a better scenario than Casey could have came up with. But this, it's like Jeff Ashton was like, what? Like honest to God. What? That's was what his face looked like. It, it was like, no idea. I mean, what was she going to say? Justification? No, of course not. It has to be an accident. It is literally the most obvious defense. But Jeff Ashton looked like he honestly thought the defense was going to was going to do, I didn't do it. I didn't know who did it. Zanny the nanny. I mean, he was outsmarted by an entirely predictable defense. The only defense that was available to this woman. And he was blindsided by it. So all I'm just saying is, I think this guy's a moron. And uh, I don't like him. I mean... He wants to keep Tommy Ziegler in jail, but he can't get Casey Anthony in there. <laughs> I don't trust this guy for anything. He's just, he's gross. But that's just my opinion, you know. And, you know, maybe fact. I mean, probably is gross. Jeff Ashen honestly points to the fact that Edward Williams never faced legal trouble after the Ziegler trial as evidence that Williams could not have been involved with the murders. Basically, according to Jeff, because Edward Williams never killed after the Christmas Eve murders, that means he wasn't involved in the Ziegler murders. Now, I might be boiling it down to his bare bones there, but he honestly says that. Like, Edward Williams, there's no more murders he committed. But I mean, if we look at everything that simplistically, which I guess is what Jeff Ashton has to do, you know, with his brain power, that means Tommy never murdered anyone after the trial either. So does that mean he is automatically innocent as well? This is very shallow thinking. This type of thinking is dangerously stupid. Edward Williams could only commit the perfect crime once. So why would he try again? He would be really pressing his luck, right? It didn't go smoothly the first time. Why do it again? You know? Anyway, I just really intensely dislike Jeff Dashton and cannot understand how people of Florida keep voting for him. Is it just name recognition without people realizing that he is famous for a colossal failure? Like, do people are, oh, Jeff Ashton, yeah, he did something. He was big in something. You know, like, I know his name. Yeah, because he... He had a slam dunk case and he's up there at the rim and the ball just smashed right back in his face. Like he, oh my God, what a blunder, but it could, I mean, he couldn't have done a worse job unless he like had like actively shit himself in front of the jury. That might've got him sympathy. That might actually made him have a better job. So I'm going to take that back. He might've done a better job if he shot himself in front of the jury. Okay. So Tommy gets a resentencing hearing when the higher courts ruled that Judge Paul had committed an error by limiting the, def the defense's mitigating witnesses during the sentencing phase of the trial in another case. Apparently, Judge Paul is real big on limiting the amount of mitigating witnesses people could have during the sentencing phase of the trial. So this is something that Judge Paul does in 
all of his cases apparently is he limits the amount of mitigating witnesses which to me is absolutely absurd because in the 70s when the supreme court in the united states supreme court struck down the death sentence provisions that were currently in place in most states actually all states and there's a period of the 1970s where death penalty was gone in america because it was deemed unconstitutional the way that death penalty laws were written now individually some states began rewriting their death penalty laws and then those would be challenged and it would be whether or not the supreme court would uphold these different type of laws and then once one state's laws new death penalty provisions were upheld other states could kind of tailor their their laws they were passing around ones they knew that would withstand um constitutional review so anyway one of the big things that came out of this in um changing why now we can have the death penalty again is that used to be a single most states had a single phase of trial it was unlike today where you have guilt phase and then a second sentencing phase those used to be all combined together and one of the big things that the supreme court liked when they were reviewing whether or not you know they were going to pass these new death penalty laws was that was something that the supreme court was very much in favor in having it's called a bifurcated trial where you have guilt phase and once a person's determined their guilt then you have sentencing phase and it makes a lot of sense because you can't be defined defending yourself and putting on your good character and all that type of jazz at the same time you're trying to say I didn't do these crimes it's like when people apologize things and express regret for them that can help you get a, a lower sentence you know help you get out of getting the death penalty you can't do that if during that same part of the trial your guilt is actually be determined at the same time so what's shocking to me is that the supreme court of the united states of america has clearly said that this separate sentencing phase is a very important part of the trial process and it's an important part of what makes the death penalty constitutional is having that separation and judge paul just stomps all over that because he's limiting how many witnesses and i mean severely limiting how many witnesses you can call in your favor to present you as a good person mitigating evidence to say something about your childhood people say you're a good person people in your community your church it, it's different things you could have psychologists coming at this point just all different types of things but this guy really limits this and he does it consistently and it's just so i cannot stand it because it's just so disrespectful of the law to me judge paul just seems like he's the law unto himself you know he'll decide how many people you can call to say that you have mental health problems or you have a terrible childhood or you know whatever it is who gives a shit you know it's not like someone's calling 150 people you know this is a small number of people that people call for this the sentencing phase of a trial is typically much shorter than the trial i mean typically it's always much shorter than the trial but anyway this guy always limits this because he thinks he's you know judge jury and whatever the hell why wouldn't he limit mitigating witnesses because when the jury returns a verdict of life in prison he's gonna overturn that if he wants to and issue a death sentence so it doesn't matter to him you know he's gonna do whatever the hell he wants but anyway because judge paul had this attitude and that higher court said oh yeah shit this ain't the way we do things then people that had been sentenced to death row in judge paul's courtroom they all begin immediately applying for resentencing hearings and tommy did that and he got one and i'll tell you what this is like well, tommy finally catches a break i mean i've never seen a person that had such a biased trial and such an unfair trial and never got a second trial he never got that second chance but finally he gets a second chance at sentencing at least and the state at this at this hearing at this resentencing hearing the state's represented by jeff dashton and uh, jeff ashton Jeff Ashton acted like such a complete fool at the new sentencing hearing. The judge, he's just like a rampaging hippo in the courtroom. The judge had to tell him to first not act in an aggravating manner and to keep it calm. 
This is the representative for the state that's cutting up in the courtroom. It's really ridiculous. But when you don't have a lot to go on, you rely on theatrics, is my point. And they don't have a lot to go on. Now, what they did have, Jeff Jackson, he brings out this testimony from another prisoner. Basically, this prisoner is an, um, an informant, you know, also commonly known as a jailhouse snitch. And then this person says that Tommy had tried to create an arrangement with another condemned prisoner that was going to be executed and had completely run out of appeals. Tommy made an agreement with this guy for this guy to confess to the murders of Tommy's family in exchange for money. And there were letters written by Tommy that supported the existence of this arrangement. I do not deny the existence of this arrangement, nor does Tommy. On the witness stand, Tommy admitted to trying to make this arrangement. He said that he was desperate, that he had no other hope. And while that wasn't a good answer, it was the truth. The plan was never acted upon, Tommy never paid the money, and that other inmate was in fact executed for his own crimes. There was evidence that the snitch got benefits from his testimony for the state. His sentence was reduced from death to life in prison, and the state attorney had offered the snitch support in a clemency petition. Did you get that? They won't let Tommy get life in prison, but this snitch, who's on death row for murder too, not only are they willing to convert his sentence to life in prison, the state is willing to help him in a clemency petition. A murderer. They're willing to get a murderer out of prison instead of just giving Tommy life. How desperate are these people? I don't understand why these people are going after this guy, this Tommy like this. I don't understand it, but they're doing it. At this resentencing, I think it's just terrible timing. There was the same time around when this Tommy had made this shady agreement to try to get somebody else to confess to the crimes. And I get why he did it. He's desperate. He's got no options. A desperate person does desperate things. And it isn't always honorable choices that one makes when they're backed into a corner. I don't know, should we be holding Tommy to a higher standard than we do other people? Because I think lots of people in these, this case made bad decisions. You know, the judge made bad decisions. The prosecution made bad decisions. The investigators made bad decisions. I think we can let a time when Tommy makes a bad decision and maybe we don't just execute him for it. But it's, it's just bad timing with this story coming out. And he is, at the resentencing, he is sentenced again to death. Now, despite all the evidence that Tommy didn't receive a fair trial, and I think that's at the heart of this. If you don't agree with me that Tommy's innocent, I can understand that. I don't understand where you're coming from, but I don't know. I, I really, I honestly, I, I take that back. I can't understand that, but I'll let you have your theory, okay, that he's guilty. But I do think that I cannot agree to the idea that Tommy got a fair trial. Tommy did not get a fair trial. And I think that's what everybody needs to understand. And when we say, but he's guilty, you know, that doesn't matter. Well, first off, I don't think he's guilty. Second off, when you stop protecting the rights of the guilty and their rights fall away, the next to go are the rights of the innocent. And it might not be you, but it could be a loved one. It could be an acquaintance. And it's important. Do you protect the guarantees our constitution gives you of a fair trial for everyone? even if they're a disgusting piece of filth or they're an innocent person. So, you know, it's all this evidence that Tommy didn't get a fair shake. And it's so sad because you see other people getting new trials and released and you just don't see it ever happening for him. But he never gets that second trial. I mean, there has never been a full review of all the evidence that Tommy's team has discovered since his conviction. And it's tons of stuff has come out. And it's because they make these discoveries piecemeal. And this is how it works. You know, it's, it, you make these things, new evidence comes in, 
one at a time, not all at once. And each time these new items are judicially reviewed, the judges invariably decide that each item on its own wouldn't have resulted in the jury having had reasonable doubt as to Tommy's guilt. And the problem is you have a limited time. You probably can't wait and let these new evidences coming in of different things build up and have a big hearing where he presents absolutely everything. Because first off, you don't know when anything's ever going to be turned up. You know what I mean? He could be waiting four years before something else new comes or something comes in a, in a week. You don't know because it's undiscovered evidence because the prosecution either hid it from you or someone just never came forward before the trial. But here's the issue is you have a limited time once this new evidence has been discovered and has come to the attention of the defense. You can't sit on it for years and let stuff build. There's a time frame where you have to bring a motion based on that new evidence. So Tommy, his team always does that. And each time it's looked at that one little piece of evidence and it's never enough to get over that hurdle of whether that would have caused the jury to have had reasonable doubt. And that's what Tommy needs. He needs a review of all these new findings taken together. And that's just never been done. And without some new found evidence, Tommy has run out of appeals. There is a different path to justice that Tommy is on now. And Tommy has finally been granted um, modern, extensive DNA testing, the newest, most advanced testing available. And Tommy's team is paying for the testing, so no cost to the state. But the state bought that testing tooth and nail to the end. Even when they knew they were going to lose because another hired court had already ruled that another prisoner in a very similar situation to Tommy was granted testing, they still fought Tommy on his testing. It's so desperate looking, but I just don't understand why everybody, that's what my dad always goes back to, he goes, why is everybody so after this guy, you know? And I, I think at this point in the state, they don't want to be known what they did to this guy. And I think it's unsettling for people to think that things like this could happen to someone like them because that's who Tommy is. You know, he's not some drug dealer or something went wrong, but he was already doing shady stuff, you know? So it's like, ah, oh, well, he didn't get him for this. He does other stuff, you know? It's not that. Tommy was an upstanding citizen. And if the state can come for him, they can come for you too. And that's what's unsettling to people. And um, I don't know why ignoring it is the better option or pretending it didn't happen other than fixing it. That's the better option. But I learned that I have a strong sense of justice from somebody on Reddit. So, you know, maybe that's why that's my opinion. But anyway, I'm going to start going over some of the stuff that came out after the trial because it is wild. Years after the trial, when Florida passes, it's a state version of the Freedom of Information Act. I think it's called the Sunshine Law. But anyway, Tommy's team applied for records related to his case, and they actually found information that had been withheld from the defense. And it's pretty shocking what they uncovered. The Winter Garden Inn was just behind the furniture store. In fact, it was in the inn's parking lot that everybody was jumping into and out of when they hopped the fence behind the furniture store. So you have the furniture store, it's facing Dillard Street, and then behind the furniture stores, they got that rear parking area, they have that tall fence, and then on the other side of the fence is the Winter Garden Inn and its parking lot. In fact, Charlie Mays is parked in the Winter Garden Inn's parking lot. So a lot of this activity, people in that hotel, that inn, would be facing the events of that night because there were rooms in the inn that faced the furniture store. But no one, no police officer immediately canvassed the occupants until three days after the murders when Robert Thompson, Chief Robert Thompson, of Oakland went looking for witnesses. This, this is going to be a sinking moment because this guy keeps popping up whack-a-mole like in this case. The police chief from another town was checking for witnesses to a crime committed outside of his jurisdiction. That's weird. Why the hell was he doing that? But also equally important, why did no one else do that before? It's basic police work. Canvas for witnesses immediately after a crime. Do I really think they could have overlooked something so simple? 
Well, yes and no. I think that Fry was so full of himself and his ability to read the crime scene and see something that no one else saw there. You know, that Tommy was a killer and not a victim. That he could have wanted all the investigators in there in the store so they could watch him work and marvel at his genius. He wanted an audience, perhaps. Explaining his one week of training in Herb McDonald's basement and how his schooling made everything as a convoluted scene seem so clear because, you know, he's just that damn brilliant. He wanted everybody to hear him. But the other part of me thinks that maybe they did canvas for witnesses, but they just didn't like what they heard. So they shit canned those witness statements. And that's a pretty serious accusation, but it's exactly what they did with the statement of the Jellison family who were staying at the Winter Garden Inn over Christmas in 1975. The prosecutor sent out a letter to the guests that were registered at the inn on Christmas Eve, and he did receive a response from the Jellison family. The letter from the prosecutor was sent three and a half months after the murders had taken place. Three and a half months, they wait to canvas. And I want to tell you, this is at a hotel, you know? So first off, Chief Thompson waiting three days. And lots of people don't stay at a hotel for three days. They could be gone. This isn't this going for neighbors. This is coming and going type place. And Waiting three days, I think, is unacceptable. But waiting three and a half months before you contact the people once you find out who is registered at the hotel is also insane. But anyway, they do get a response from the Jellison family. They reported that after returning to their room after dinner, they sat together composing some postcards. The son was going out to mail the postcards off. And when he went to exit the room, he opened the door and he noticed a police car in the back lot of the Ziegler Furniture Store. A police officer was leaning over the hood of the car with his gun drawn. The son went back into the room and his whole family starts watching from the window. Is it at this point that they first hear shots Fired. They have witnesses, witnesses, a family of witnesses that saw a police officer parked in the rear of the Ziegler furniture store and they never heard any shots fired until after they saw that police car. Now, you know what we've been talking about here for hours and that's when the police showed up all the shooting all the criming was done there were no shots fired according to the police after they arrived but that's not what this family saw and this supports tommy's theory has held for decades that somehow there could have been corrupt police involved in the murder of his family and charlie mays and what's so important is that this account of a family seeing a police officer with their vehicle in the back parking lot of the Ziegler Furniture Store and shots being fired after this police officer had arrived, this account was never conveyed to the defense. Not until the defense made a public records request in 1987, 12 years after the murders. So Tommy's lawyers used this sort of Freedom of Information Act law to get access to the state attorney's files in the case. In this file, there was an audio tape of a conversation between the prosecutor's investigator and John Jellison. On the night of the murders, John was staying with his parents and teenage sister in the Winter Garden Inn. Their room faced the rear of the furniture store. Okay, so now I'm going to go over the transcript of the phone call here, and I'm going to have my husband come in and play a part with me too, so it's not just me reading both sides, so it sounds a little um, less confusing. And guys, I hate to do this to you because this story about the conviction of Tommy Ziegler and the murder at the furniture store in Florida is just taking forever because there's so much information and it's gone on for such a long time. But I need my husband to read this via the transcript from the phone call between an investigator and John Jellison, the witness from the Winter Garden Inn. The witness that says his family saw police at the Ziegler family furniture store. They saw the police arrive before shots were ever fired. But I have to get my husband to read the transcript with me and he's really booked up. So I'm going to leave this episode here for now. And when we pick up on the next episode, that's where we'll open.